Jesus once said that it's easier to thread a big old camel through the tiny little eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter into God's kingdom. And when we read that verse, most of us assume Jesus must be talking about someone else. We we rarely consider the possibility that Jesus might be talking about us. Most of us don't see ourselves as wealthy. In fact, economists have discovered an interesting pattern here in the United States that no matter how much money a person makes each year, they don't see themselves as wealthy, but they define wealthy people as people who make at least double what they make. And that's true across the whole economic scale. Jesus must be talking about someone else. But what if he's not? In 2019, the top 10% of wage earners in America made $158,000 that year. The top 1% made a little over $750,000 that year. That same year, the average American wage earner made $58,000 that year, and the poverty level in 2019 was $12,800 a year. We, we tend to define wealthy people as that top 10% or maybe the top 5% or the top 1%. But if we include the rest of the world in our calculations, that changes things drastically. The, the poverty level drops from $12,800 a year as it was in 2019 if we factor in the rest of the world to $693 a year. So so a person living at the poverty level in 2019 made nearly 20 times as much as a person living at a poverty level in other parts of the world. That makes us uncomfortable when we read Jesus' words. Because relative to the rest of the world, most of us would probably be defined as wealthy. Now we're in a series through the New Testament book of James called Faith Work. We finish this series next Sunday. And today we come to a section where James talks about what faith work looks like for the rich and for the poor. In James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, he talks about for the wealthy. And then in verses 7 through 11 of James 5, he talks about what faith work looks like for the poor. So let's begin by looking at what he says about the wealthy in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Here's what it says. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth for the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. If someone were ever to write a book on how pastors cause people to leave their churches... There's probably a whole chapter about not preaching a sermon on James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. 
When we read these words, we're caught off guard with how confrontational James is. James sounds less like a pastor and more like one of the Old Testament prophets like Amos or Micah. Now, most Bible scholars believe that the wealthy James is talking about were not Christians. In fact, the words weep and wail in verse 1 are typically words that are used to call someone to repentance, to, to change the direction of their life. So James is treating the wealthy he's talking about here in James 5 as unbelievers who've not yet trusted in Jesus and he's calling them to repentance, to faith, before it's too late. In these verses, James issues four different accusations against the wealthy. And these four accusations, I think, correspond to four different temptations that wealthy people face. I think these are temptations you and I face. These four temptations, I think, help us understand why Jesus said it's easier to thread a camel through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to respond to his call and enter God's kingdom. So let's look at these temptations briefly. The first temptation is hoarding our wealth. Hoarding our wealth. Grain and clothing and metals like gold and silver were the common currencies to buy things back then. If James were writing today, he might say uh, stocks, bonds, and real estate. And James pictures these currencies, grain, clothing, and metal, as gradually losing their value until they eventually become worthless to a person. The bushels of grain stored in the granary are rotting. The closet full of extravagant clothing is being eaten by moths and the silver and gold bars hidden in a safe are slowly corroding. Because this is what we happen when we hoard our wealth. You see, hoarding is accumulating more than we need. Hoarding is different from saving. Saving for the future is wise and biblical. But someone who hoards holds on to an excessive amount of wealth more than they'll ever need in their lifetime. A person who hoards finds their sense of security in life through what they're holding on to. They trust in their wealth to sustain them in this life rather than trusting in God. Now remember that James is the half-brother of Jesus. He probably learned this from Jesus because Jesus made the exact same point. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus once told a story about a farmer who had such a big harvest one season that it made him rich. In fact, his barn couldn't hold all the grain he harvested, so he built a huge barn to store all the grain, and then he sat back and thought, now I'm secure in life. But Jesus said that very night... The rich farmer died and had to give an account to God. And, and this is what Jesus says in Luke 12, 21. This is the way it will be for all those who hoard things for themselves. When we die and give an account to God at the end of our lives, hoarded wealth does us no good. In fact, it testifies against us for the kind of life that we lived on earth. Yet the more we have, the more we are tempted to hoard what we have. Here's the second temptation James talks about, withholding what we rightfully owe other people. 
withholding what we rightfully owe other people. In verse four, James accuses the wealthy of defrauding their workers. Wealthy landowners were withholding wages from the day laborers that they had hired to work their fields. You see, the day laborers were among the poorest in ancient Israel. They lived from hand to mouth each day and they relied upon getting paid at the end of their workday so they could feed their families that night. And yet, these landowners were refusing to pay them what they were owed. Back then, laborers had no rights. There, were no, there was no HR department to go through. There was no labor unions. And so James remembers how in the Old Testament book of Genesis, how Abel's blood cried out from the ground after he was murdered by his brother Cain. And James says that just like that happened in Genesis, the wages of these workers who were unpaid cry out and have reached God. The more wealthy a person is, the more tempted they are to withhold paying for what they rightfully owe. The third temptation the wealthy face is indulging selfish desires. Indulging selfish desires. James accuses the wealthy he's describing here as living in comfort and self-indulgence. The the Greek word for self-indulgence in verse 5 means excessively satisfying our own appetites and desires. It reminds me of a scene from Suzanne Collins' book, The Hunger Games, People from all 13 districts are gathered together in the capital city for this extravagant feast and celebration before the start of the Hunger Games. And everyone is feasting on gourmet food. And when the people eat so much food that they can't take another bite, they drink a little elixir that enables them to throw up so they can eat even more food. Excessively satisfying their own appetites. The more wealthy we become, the more tempted we are to indulge every whim and satisfy every desire. And wealth gives us the resources to do this. We're tempted to spend more and more on our own comforts. And so James uses a disturbing image here that he borrows from the prophet Jeremiah where he pictures the wealthy as an animal that's overfed before it's slaughtered. Instead of finding their comfort and joy in the God who created them, the wealthy use their wealth to indulge every selfish desire. And the last temptation James mentions is oppressing the poor. In verse 6, James uses legal language to describe um, wealthy people misusing the court systems in order to condemn and to even kill the innocent. Because wealthy people have more resources that poor people don't have, the wealthy have an advantage in most court systems. Because even if they're not bribing a judge, the wealthy have enough money to prolong a legal dispute until the poor person runs out of money and has to give up. And that's what happens in courts all around the world today. Now, throughout church history, many Christians have understood the innocent one of verse 6 as a reference to Jesus. He was innocent after all, yet he was condemned by the courts of his day. He wasn't guilty of any wrongdoing, and yet he was declared guilty and executed by the state. When the wealthy use their wealth to oppress the powerless, they're using their money as a means of power, and the more a person has, the more tempting it is to use that influence in unjust ways. 
These are some of the temptations that come from being wealthy. Now, back then, people viewed wealth as a sign of God's blessing. People viewed riches as an indication that someone was especially favored by God. So when Jesus said that saying, it's easier to thread a camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to be saved, Jesus' followers were confused. In fact, um, Matthew's gospel says they blurted out to Jesus, if the rich can't be saved, who can? And with that, Jesus said, what's impossible with us is possible with God. You see, Jesus wasn't saying that wealthy people can't become Christians. He was saying that wealthy people who do become Christians will face unique temptations that make it very challenging for them to respond to the call of Jesus. These are not easy words to read, especially for us who live in one of the most prosperous economies that's ever existed in the history of the world. What would faith work look like for the wealthy that James is writing to? Well, I think it would start with this. I think it would start with repenting and believing in Jesus before it's too late. Remember, the wealthy people here that James is writing about were probably not Christians. And so James is first calling them to turn away from the way that they're living, trusting in the security of their wealth, loving their wealth more than God calling them to repentance and faith in Jesus. He's inviting them to a new path, not a path of poverty, but a path of following Jesus, a path of discipleship. And I think if we look at the opposite of these four temptations, we can find out what faith work will look like for a person who responds to the call of Jesus with faith. Faith work for the wealthy will lead to sharing instead of hoarding. Sharing instead of hoarding. In Matthew chapter six, Jesus said that to not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Storing up treasures of heaven means sharing instead of hoarding. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't have an emergency fund. Um, Doesn't mean we shouldn't prepare for retirement or that we shouldn't save so we can send our kids to college and things like that. Those things are just wise. Sharing simply means we don't hoard what we have. We don't store up more than we will ever need and then trust in that to give us security in life. Imagine... Imagine that you knew for sure that one day the U.S. dollar would become worthless and monopoly money would replace the U.S. dollar. You knew that for sure. That right now monopoly money is worthless unless you're playing monopoly. But imagine that you knew that gradually the U.S. dollar was going to decline until it was worthless and simultaneously monopoly money was going to get more and more valuable until it replaced the U.S. dollar. Well, a wise person would keep living on the U.S. dollar while they can, but would gradually transfer their currency, exchange their currency into monopoly money. Well, Jesus is saying here that all of the currencies of this world, the dollar, the yen, the euro, the franc, bitcoin, all of them are depreciating in value. And by the time we die or Jesus comes again, they will be completely worthless to us. And so instead of hoarding it until the end, live on it, but share it. 
convert earthly currencies, treasures on earth, into heavenly currencies, treasures in heaven. We do this by by sharing our resources, by by giving to our church, by supporting missions and causes that are extending God's kingdom, by, by stewarding our possessions to share with other people, sharing instead of hoarding. Next, faith work for the wealthy will pay debts instead of withholding what we owe. Paying instead of withholding what we owe. Romans 13, James says, to repay everyone what we owe them. He's not saying never go in debt, but he's saying repay what you owe. And this includes the people that we hire, the people that we pay for services. A faith that works does not withhold what it rightfully owes. Third, a a, a faith that works denies instead of indulges selfish desires. Denies instead of indulges. Jesus once said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Now, that, that doesn't mean taking a vow of poverty. Jesus means building self-denial into our way of life. Resisting the urge to use our wealth to indulge every want and to satisfy every desire. As Christians, we're to find our comfort and joy in Christ Not in getting a massage every week or saying yes to yet another pair of shoes or buying a new car every other year. Not that there's anything wrong with massages or new shoes or new cars. See, I can't stand here in judgment and say, this is where you should be denying yourself. I'm trying to figure that out for myself. But I can say that if self-denial is never part of our prayer and reasoning process, Something's gone wrong in our Christian discipleship. And then finally, faith work for the wealthy means advocating instead of oppressing. Advocating instead of oppressing. In Isaiah chapter 58, God says through the prophet that the kind of fasting that God has chosen is to loose the chains of injustice and to set the oppressed free. Money brings power And followers of Jesus who have the power that money brings them should steward that power to advocate for those who have less. Whether it's confronting the racial inequity that still plagues our society or advocating for the lives of the unborn today, whether it's helping victims of human trafficking or caring for refugees and immigrants, wealth gives us an opportunity to advocate for those who have no voice. And I know we've spent a lot of time in these first six verses because most of us are on the wealthier side of the equation in what James is talking about. We face these temptations more than a person who lives on $1.90 a day, which is the poverty level in the rest of the world. Not the people in poverty don't face their own temptations. We'll talk about those in a minute. But wealth brings unique temptations that make it challenging to follow Jesus. But let's look at what James says to the poor in verses 7 through 11. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. 
See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Most of the Christians that James was writing to were on the poor side of the equation. In fact, as you look around the world today, most Christians in the world today are on the poor side of the economic scale. And the message of James to the poor was this, patiently persevere until you are vindicated. Persevere until you are vindicated. Notice the focus on this future vindication in verse 7, until the Lord's coming. In verse 8, the Lord's coming is near. In verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. These references to the second coming of Jesus are meant to, to point the poor and orient them towards a day that will come when God will make all things right. Now, it's passages in the Bible like this that really bothered Karl Marx the founder of communism. Marx once said that he believed that religion was like an opium that kept people asleep. You see, Marx believed that the wealthy used Bible verses like these to keep the poor trapped within their poverty. But what Marx and his later followers failed to consider was the possibility that what James is saying here is true. That Jesus really will come again and really will make all things right. And the poor really will be vindicated. You see, James assumed that verses like this and religious religion in, a general, in general were lies created by the powerful and the wealthy in order to keep the poor in their place. But if these words are true, they're not an opium to keep people asleep. They're a wake-up call to live in hope. There's some commands in these verses that I think tease out what it means to persevere. First is to be patient. He says be patient. The, the Greek word for patience refers to an unswerving willingness to wait instead of trying to force things. See, in the Bible, patience is a form of hope. Impatience, a form of hopelessness. To the poor, he says, be patient, don't give up. Then in verse 8, he says to stand firm. Stand firm. The, the English Standard Translation translates establish your hearts. The contemporary English version puts it strengthen your resolve. In other words, nurture that inner strength that will enable you to resist giving in. Giving in to what? Giving in to hopelessness. Giving in to violence giving in to stealing, giving in to hatred. See, poverty has its own set of temptations. People trapped in poverty are sometimes tempted to oppress those who are poorer than they are or tempted to result to violence, to change their circumstances. James says, stand firm, don't give in. 
And finally, in verses 10 and 11, he says to persevere. Be patient, stand firm, and persevere. The the Greek word for perseverance pictures someone with a heavy weight on their shoulders who continues moving forward. I picture a backpacker on the final mile before they get to the summit. In other words, keep following Jesus even under the weight of the afflictions that you're experiencing. Faith work for the poor is to patiently persevere with Jesus until they reach the summit. Don't give up. Don't give in. And persevere. Keep moving forward. There's so much in this section that's convicting. In James chapter 5, we find what faith work looks like for those who are wealthy and for those who are in poverty. And that the wealthy and the poor face different kinds of temptations. Now, we live in a society where many people have the opportunity to improve their economic condition. Most people in our country today aren't born into a caste or a class where they're forever located in their economic location. The poor sometimes become wealthy and the wealthy sometimes become poor. There are many parts of the world where that could never happen. But rich or poor, James calls us to faith. A faith that works. And so as we close, I want to share a prayer that I've prayed many times in my life that's based on a passage in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. And let me just paraphrase this prayer. It goes something like this, based on that passage from Proverbs. Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches, but only what I need in life. Protect me from having so much that I would forget you and deny you. And protect me from having so little that I be tempted to steal and dishonor your holy name. Give me only what you know I need, what you know I could handle, nothing more and nothing less. Let's pray together. Father, these are challenging words. Words of hope and comfort, yet words of challenge. And Lord, we confess that we live in a culture that is constantly tempting us to trust in what we have for our security, to to hoard more and more. A, a, A culture that distracts us from following the call to live as disciples of Jesus. And Lord, we didn't control where we were born, yet here we are. We give you ourselves because we know that nothing is impossible with you. We know that you are a faithful God. We know that you love rich and poor alike. And that as we've learned in James, that you don't tempt us, but instead you give us empowerment and strength to resist temptation. So may we be a faithful people. May this be a faithful church. May our faith result in action. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.